Many of you I've never met before. And likewise, you haven't met me. I'm wondering if anyone is here for the first time tonight that they haven't been to CIMC before. Well, welcome. I'd like to say that Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is a place of welcoming for people of all ages and origins, sexual orientations, um, ethnicities, and so forth, and also for everything that is um, inside us that we bring here. That's kind of the openness of the Buddhist path. It's a non-rejecting kind of path. So thank you for people who've been coming for a long time, and thank you for those who are new here. These are some um, thoughts on gratitude. I'm not by any means attempting to cover the entire subject. And I don't know if it's a mark of my generation, but um, I used to battle with my mother about gratitude when uh, eating dinner. And she would say, eat what's in front of you, be grateful that you have food, and think of the starving Armenians. <laughs> and at the time, I grew up in Latin America, and I, didn't I wasn't really sure where Armenia was. I'd ne certainly never met an Armenian. And subsequently, I learned that the, there was a genocide there. It was quite dire. A friend of mine's great-grandmother, I think, was burned in her house alive during that Armenian famine. And of course, my battle with my mother was sort of complicated because actually, let's say artichokes, I actually liked them. I liked almost, I really like almost everything to eat, but, and I always did, but I had learned at school that it's a point of honor among children to refuse things, and you're not supposed to like certain things or you're not cool. So I didn't like artichokes or Brussels sprouts for some years, or I officially refused them. What I felt like from my mother that um, she was, you know, I know human beings, we pick up a lot about each other and we understand our parents and as children we have kind of limited perspectives too, but um, as my mother was telling us to be grateful, she felt a little bit like kind of like this, you know, like, and um, what, what that she wasn't satisfied with us somehow and um, maybe it was her inner loneliness, and she was handing us her own kind of quasi-workable coping mechanism that she'd used for her life, like um, sort of a Pollyanna look at the bright side and don't look at the dark side um, aspect. So all of her, um, excuse me, I've, I went to the doctor today and she said, maybe I'm contagious, I do have a cough, but she didn't tell me I couldn't give the talk. <laughs> My mother had um, had a quite a pretty unhappy childhood. She'd had a series of stepmothers, and one of them was alcoholic and used to come in the living room with a gun and threaten to kill everyone kind of thing. And um, I think little kids, we were like, you had me, now you'd have to take care of me, something like that. Like what? And um, she felt we were thankless or ungrateful because she was being really nice to us compared to the way she had been treated as a mom. And I think it was a little bit of an effort for her. She was trying to give us something that 
she had never received. So when she said, you don't know how lucky you are, we really didn't know that. So this is just to say that uh, the practice of gratitude took a long time, in my case, to come around to feel real um, because it had a complicated start. And also it, um, I introduced with that story just to, because it led me to ponder the dynamic of how expectations work our own and other people's expectations, our relationship to that. And um, there's a lot said out in the world about um, Buddhism and its relationship to desires, like when is something enough for us and what's good enough and are we good enough and how do we feel about ourselves? What do we insist upon? What's the difference between a goal and an achievement and an outcome that we can't be happy without? And actually within all of this, where does gratitude begin? Those are um, areas that human beings have been discussing for a long time and I wouldn't say that there's any quite blanket rule about it, but in Buddhism there are um, considered to be very healthy and wholesome kinds of desire, just for anyone who is coming in new that it's not just about cutting off wanting anything. But when the Buddha first started to teach, there's a sort of a paradigm that he put out saying that um, life has suffering in it, life has pain, and you can't really avoid it um, in part. Uh, because the nature of the universe is that it's always changing. So if you say that it's always changing, then no one thing or experience can make you happy forever, right? Does that just completely make sense? It's just a logical thing. And yet there's something the way our mind works that's a little bit um, crude around that, like we, there, in some emotional or intuitive way, when a lot of times when we reach out for something, it's as if we believe that um, that's going to fix it for us. That um, it may not be on an articulated level, but we think that that's going to make it. That's going to make it happen for me. Um, we want something that isn't there in things. And it's a kind of imbalance in our perception, in part due to the nature of our thinking mind. So I suddenly took off into sort of existentialism or philosophy or something like that. But say like if we, as human beings, we were really smart and we can talk and we have this big, big symbol system so that we can communicate, which has enabled us to form cultures and pretty much dominate the planet in a way. I can speak with you guys and you guys can understand me because we've created these symbol systems. So like I can say my mother and you all sort of know what I mean. Like you've never met her, but you know you had your mother so you can refer to that. But very often, um, just as an example, one of my meditation teachers used to say, the mother in your mind is not your real mother. But it often seems like the people in our mind are the real people, especially when we're fighting with them and rehashing conversations. It seems like they're really there. And they're just a little glitch in the way that we're set up. And the way that we think about ourself um, has a kind of false intuition 
to it, as if we're solid, as if we're kind of someone, and not as if we're sort of really interdependent with one another and with nature and with the food we eat and with culture and um, all of those things that are constantly streaming through us. So who we are came to be as a result of a long process of inputs and who we think we are varies even through the day, like where we are on our scale of happiness and well-being and et cetera. Are you with me so far? Does it make sense? So we can be found wanting. We'll go back to that thing about wanting, you know, that we're often feel like whatever we do isn't really enough. And that's certainly true in meditation practice. Most people feel like, well, I don't get to meditate enough every day. I should be meditating more. Right? I feel that very often. So here I'll read um, something from a recent New Yorker. Um, Lily was always in the habit of needing things she didn't have. Water, iced tea, Chablis, spray-on sunscreen, her phone, her Kindle, her iPad, a hand, advice. I remark on this because given my position in this group of people, I was a secular boyfriend of sorts to her. It often fell to me to fetch Lily's things or hold things for Lily while she did stuff like pee. But I also think that her constant fidgeting neediness captured something we all felt, the ever-present urge to tweak or adjust the experience to make it just a touch more perfect. Could you just hold this? Lily would say, or can you just do my back? Or can you just come look at something? And I slowly understood what it is to be a man for a certain type of high-strung, successful, and thin woman. You're an avatar of capability like a living Swiss army knife. <laughs> this is a story about some very debauched people in uh, Las Vegas <laughs> taking lots of drugs. But anyway, um, this one sentence in here, the ever-present urge to tweak or adjust the experience to make it just a touch more perfect. Like, say if we're all maybe trying to meditate in order to become enlightened or liberated or happier, or like, what about like this moment? Does this moment count on the scale? Or are we actually thinking that you know, something really important is going to come out of this talk? You're going to hear something really good in like a little bit. Um, <laughs> where's the take-home? Where's the payoff? <clears throat> Our re real problem, as the Buddha said, is that we're a little bit just out of harmony with nature. We're part of nature, but we're out of harmony with it, and it influences all our expectations. So I just came back from teaching a meditation retreat in Washington State, and um, the, as the main teacher, which is one of my new roles, I've usually, usually been the assistant. But I was the main teacher and I was given the uh, house that the founder of this retreat place had built for himself and his wife. And it was quite a cushy thing. It had like a gas log and wall-to-wall -wall carpets and paneling and a kitchen and two bathrooms and even a whirlpool tub that I actually was working so hard I never got into. But it, and the, students were peeing in yogurt buckets because they didn't have enough, they had outdoor toilets. <laughs> so I felt a sort of like twinge going into this mansion that I was living in. And I thought, this is kind of too 
good for me. Like, I don't need this. I'm a Buddhist teacher, you know. Um, and I'll come around to this a little bit more later on. But one of the things that happened was I was also so blown away by the magnificence of it that I was wandering around upstairs before I turned the lights on and there was this thing in there that looked, I thought, wow, and they even have a stair-stepper machine in here like for me to exercise when in between giving interviews to everyone and writing the talks. And in the dark, it turned out to be a computer printer, which was, it was really good that I didn't step on the feeder <laughs> because I would have like totally smashed it. So what I'm saying with this kind of silly anecdote is that my desire perceived or projected something into the world that wasn't there. Like I was like, wow, this would just make my life so complete if I had this stair-stepper machine. <laughs> so we sort of project an, an ability to satisfy us into things that isn't there. So a Tibetan hermit named Longchen Rabjam wrote, looking around, I find the perception of beings to be truly amazing. They fixate on what is not real as real, so that it certainly seems real. Ordinary mind is seduced by sense objects in all their variety. This useless focus, moment by moment, extends into a continuum as days, months, years, and whole lives go by. Beings are deceived by misconstruing what is not dualistic as dualistic. So the dualistic is that there's a me in here and there's stuff out there. Now I would like to say, I think we all have that, right? Like there's me and there's you, right? And yet, in reality, I mean, even science would say that um, if you get down into the electrons like, or anything like that, that there's not quite such a, the thing that we feel about who we are, it doesn't correspond to the reality, right? Um, and from this dualism, um, now, this is not to say that we're not allowed to have a sense of self or that we shouldn't have a boundary of our skin or if someone abuses us, we shouldn't, um, you know, try to raise our dignity and move away from the situation or figure out a solution. That's, this is kind of on another level than that. And um, so I don't mean to be saying things like that. It's the sense of being separate in a toxic way which sometimes is expressed in the Christian myth of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden or something like that and wandering around ashamed with a sense of sin or a sense of being never ever good enough. That's the thing the Buddha was pointing at. I imagine that many um, spiritual traditions are pointing at that, that there's a sense of inner lack in us that drives us to distraction very often. Like they did a brain study of internet searches and it's like this hunger for pursuit and then finding something like pursuit and then finding and pursuit and then finding um, can become really addictive. And in your inbox, is there something really interesting there for me? That stuff, um, which is kind of, it really can become problematic in our own life. I'm not trying to shake my fist as for each of us to imagine or look into our own life and see if um, this fits anything. Um, <clears throat> how easily we feel left out at times, like how insecure we can get, that kind of thing. So this sense of separation and not correctly understanding our existence, um, our subjectivity, uh, 
can turn into something pretty difficult. So the, we speak about the three poisons of greed or insisting things should be a certain way or else I can't be happy and hatred and um, you know, wanting to separate ourselves from things and delusion, which is kind of an artificial sense of self. Now I want to sort of come around and say that each one of these has a positive aspect. Like if you never want anything, like you would never eat your food, for example. And if you, um, let's say Michael J. Fox, this really well-known person who does Parkinson's research and gets $63 million a year to research to try and to find a disease, uh, cure for a horrible degenerative condition. I mean, if he just said, oh, well, it's nothing to me, you know, like he wouldn't be trying to bring this benefit to the world. So you could say that that's a kind of like part of not liking having Parkinson's and to not have a healthy ego doesn't make sense either. So, but when greed, hate, and delusion become toxic, I don't know if any of you have ever seen those, um, that YouTube thing about the things that all couples fight about. Like, um, is it necessary for you to chew like that? Like, do you have to really chew like that? And <laughs> could you please stop? Or how the toilet paper goes, like with the little, you know, should it co go over the top or come around the back? Or I asked you to buy butter and what happened? You don't love me. You never listen to me, <laughs> right? Those things. Or um, I was just reading about in the Boston Magazine about uh, someone from Harvard Business School, I think, who's started some kind of huge lawsuit with a Sichuan kitchen in Newton over a $4 discrepancy in his bill that he's kind of like trying to crush this little restaurant owner um, with the full weight of the law because it's a major crime to misrepresent the price and, you know, anyway. But to just take it apart a little bit, um, so my husband didn't buy the butter. I, he went shopping and I told him to buy it and he didn't buy it, okay? So um, I see the butter isn't there. It's not okay with me because of greed. Like it needs to be my way or else I can't be happy. Then I get angry on top of that. Maybe I feel hurt, you know, because he didn't listen. It's all about me, so that's delusion. He only did it because he doesn't listen to me. He really doesn't love me. He's such a selfish man, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, so I know that, I assume that we're all human beings in here and we all know what this is like. Like this is kind of our life on some certain level. And we repeat and repeat and repeat this habit about me and you and stuff like that. And then it becomes a conversation in our head that keeps repeating. So one of the things that neuroscience is discovering is that um, our brain is kind of like a ski slope, like we do the same things over and over and it just becomes slicker and slicker and we just go there right away so that like some, I might open the refrigerator the next time and look where the butter is supposed to go and say like, God damn it, there's no butter again. And it's only because he stuck it on the middle shelf instead of on the top. Do you know what I mean? It's like you just go right there and you're like, and it's like, well, actually it's over in this, you know, who moved my cheese? I haven't read that book, but it's something like that. <laughs> so driven by this misperception and inner sense of lack, um, the, now we're gonna, this is a sort of a two-part talk where it's in, because we're not really looking closely enough at life itself that we come up like this. Like this is kind of a simplification of what life is that 
we find in some ways convenient, but it's really hurtful to us and to our relationships and to our body chemistry and everything. It's this slippery slope of I can't be okay unless things are this way. And for people who've studied Buddhism for longer periods of time will recognize in this the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering and dissatisfaction is called craving, the technical term, but it's the feeling of I can't be okay unless something is like this in this moment. So an inability to um, really bear one's own experience as it is. And this is supported by many unconscious narratives in society, which is just human nature written large and can feel like the slippery ski slope. So now we're going to put a little yellow caution tape across that ski slope um, and say we're not going there anymore and now we're starting another um, finding a different place to stand or another method of living. So it's a quote from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, very well-known teacher. Every morning when we wake up, we have 24 brand new hours to live. What a precious gift. We have the capacity to live in a way that these 24 hours will bring peace, joy, and happiness to ourselves and everyone else. We can smile, breathe, walk, and eat in such a way that allows us to be in touch with the abundance of happiness that is available. We're very good at preparing to live. We know how to sacrifice 10 years for a diploma, and we're willing to work very hard to get a job, a car, a house, and so on. But we have difficulty remembering that we are alive in this present moment the only moment there is for us to live. Every breath we take, every step we make, could be filled with peace, joy, and serenity. We need only to be awake and alive in this present moment. Now it sounds both a little excessive maybe, but it also puts that uh, who moved my cheese a little bit to shame, doesn't it? The important words I find in that in Thich Nhat Hanh's hopeful statement is that we have this capacity. We have this ability. This can become part of our life. That um, It's a capacity that can also grow. The Buddha in the Dhammapada said that we have no better friend than a trained mind and we have no worse enemy than an untrained mind. So through meditation practice and various other uh, techniques, we can actually train our mind to be happier and to be less kind of prone to going down that ski slope every second um, or having quite that same habit of just getting overwhelmed with uh, paranoia and dissatisfaction and despair and uh, sadness and all those things. It's a lifelong journey and it takes place in the here and now. It's kind of something that we do by choosing the here and now moment and bringing to it our capacity for adaptation, for flexibility, and for meeting the moment with certain kinds of qualities of presence. There are also kind of little simple things that we can do, which include um, something like the very well scientifically studied now uh, practice of making a list of things that we are grateful for kind of looking around in our life and saying, like, what am I actually grateful for on this day? 
last year around this time my father was um, dying and for about the three or four months before he died and for four or five months after he died my sisters and I maintained an email uh, correspondence that was a gratitude list by text message and email every day that we would each write down three things that we were grateful for that day and it really helped us to um, move through that time not only as a you know, family as a group of sisters, but also as people. And it was quite fun when I would find out that somebody put my sister's garbage out that day. I would feel happy for her, and I would also know something about her and her neighbors and her particular day, that kind of thing. We did. We got into some funky areas, too, that I will not go into, the things that we were happy about. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll say that you remember I was talking about being in that sort of lavish accommodation um, on the retreat. And at one point, the habit of being grateful came up for when I looked around and I thought, you know what? I actually really like this reclining chair and this gas log. I like being warm. I had a cold. I wasn't feeling that good. And I thought, you know, it's nice to have these really squishy carpets. And from being that it was kind of too nice that I felt embarrassed and out of place in it, I just surrendered into being grateful and it wasn't in an egotistical way which I think is what I had been afraid of in the first place it wasn't like oh now you know like nothing else will be good enough for me it was like I really appreciated the sense of being cared for that was there and I saw that um, there had been a little stiffness and like it what disappeared from almost like the center of my chest was this feeling of almost like an arrogance like I don't need this I don't need to be so pampered I'm you know, I'm made of sterner stuff, I guess, or, you know, or I'm ashamed to accept that. Anyway, I don't need to go. Maybe the other students on the retreat were like the starving Armenians of my mother's um, eat your peas. But in any case, and what I discovered that there was a kind of um, internal humility in allowing myself to be pleased by this place. It wasn't exactly the style I would have chosen for my own house or anything like that. But when I was able to sort of receive the beauty of it and the way that I felt in there, there was an opening in my heart that was really quite special and really sort of humble in a way. And um, I find that once you start to do the practice of being grateful, there's so much that you can be grateful for and the feeling of it is really quite a wonderful thing. So I'll move to a little bit of talking about how you can be grateful not only for um, good things, the good things in our life. Like it's certainly good to practice mindfulness and to be awake and alive, say like while you're eating your food or something like that. Like how often do we eat when we're distracted? And you might as well pay attention while you're doing things that you really like because you'll really want to be there and you'll find that your life is really enriched by that. But um, because of the danger of feeling like you'll just be cutting yourself off. Like I think when I was talking in the beginning about my mom telling me to be grateful, it was like, well, she isn't giving me any tools to be with this part of life that's hard. And is it po how do we fit that into this kind of idea? The first thing I'd like to say is that there's something that's very real, which is called a post-traumatic growth um, that when difficult things come to us, um, aversion or 
not liking them is a natural response. But catastrophizing um, isn't necessary and is actually kind of harmful. Like a lot of times if we're unhappy, there's something inside us just as we feel like um, we can't be happy unless things are a certain way. That's like, and we make ourselves miserable with perfectionism. The inability to tolerate even the slightest discomfort um, at a deep level can become a real torture. Like we feel like if we're angry, we're a bad person all of a sudden, so we shouldn't be angry about this. And we're much more grown up than to feel so left out when, like for example, I was in a conversation where two other people were moms and they were really getting into being moms and I'm not a mom. And then I, this huge wave of something came up like uh, I'm unworthy because I'm not a mom and um, things like this can come up. So. Just to think about that because we have difficulty doesn't mean that we can't be grateful. Our mind has a negativity bias, like we tend to really define ourselves by our problems a lot of the time and go over and over them and back to them and try to fix them in our minds a lot because we worry, we overly worry. But it's possible, I'm sure that we all have this experience somewhere in our life that even though something didn't seem like a good thing at the time that um, we're grateful for certain experiences because we learned so much from them or we grew so much from them. I have a, I have a story about this somewhere. Yeah, here it is. So this is someone talking about his mother um, when she's old and he said in the months before she died we talked in her small floral bedroom. She was 80, and in a hoarse voice, she story, told me stories of her life, most of which I'd never heard before. She'd pilfered a handbag from Bamberger's department store in Newark when she was 15. It was a leather clutch and fit nicely under her coat. Um, after her mother died, she felt entitled to steal anything she wanted. At 17, she married a pharmacist twice her age who wore bow ties. She didn't love him. Then they had the marriage annulled. And she said um, she went to Paris and met a French-Canadian named Arthur and had sex with him in a dark room. And he, he sent her flowers every day, um, even after she got married. And um, she would never quite get over him. And then he goes on and on about it and then said that um, married her father. Um, at the end of the Second World War, she landed a job met my father, and he promised her protection, took her to the suburbs where she became a conventional wife and mother. After that, her daydreams became more vibrant than her waking life. My mother envisaged herself as a frequent guest at the Algonquin round table where she would match wits with Dorothy Parker, rub shoulders with the literati, and have lovers instead of a husband. These fantasies sustained her through a divorce, a third marriage, widowhood, and long years alone in Florida. If I'd gotten the life I wanted, my mother said to me, you and I would never have met. I waited for an ironic barb to follow, but she surprised me by saying, and that would have really been too bad. My sister um, is a physician's assistant and she works in uh, Stanford Hospital with people with really dire things in their stomach. She's a kind of works in the stomach area. Um, and she said people who are dealing really well with dying will be 
grateful. Like she'll say, well, we have to come in and we have to put in a stick in another tube somewhere in you and they'll be like, thank you, you know, and I know that you're keeping me alive a little longer. Or they'll say something like, I know I'm not going to be here this time next year, so I'm happy to be here now, even though I'm in the hospital. I mean, if you come down to it, um, we are a little bit like brats. <laughs> I'll say that I've come to a place through lots of different kinds of internal and other kinds of work that I'm happy to be the person that I am now, even though that means that it's happy because of all the things that happened that may not have been the things that I wanted to happen or the ways that I wanted to be, but um, it's kind of an awesome feeling, and I didn't always have it. Like maybe a lot of you had that all the time, like that you felt like you were fine being who you were but in my case, it was a hard achievement to feel that, and it came about through the meditation practice, really, mostly. So there's a saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> or as we used to say when I was a kid in Latin America, um, lo que no mata engorda. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you fatter. <laughs> That's when we would drop things on the floor and we would eat it anyway. Um, <laughs> So people who have not been here before may not realize that mindfulness meditation practice is a kind of all-terrain practice where when we're living in this moment, um, the moment-to-moment -moment appreciation of what's happening, we include everything that's happening. Like we, although we might gear ourselves to be grateful, we also accept whatever's here. And it's kind of this um, willingness to live in this way with what's real that seems to characterize this form of spirituality and also almost makes it not seem like spirituality. Um, but we can be grateful even for that. So from this um, retreat that I just taught, there was a young woman there who started off her life as a migrant worker picking cherries in the Flathead Valley with her family. And um, I find her like to be quite extraordinary human being. And so she gave me a box of dried cherries with chocolate on them, and she wrote me this note, it's in Spanish, um, but she writes, um, thank you uh, for what you give uh, through the Dharma. To me, it feeds my whole body, soul, spirit, and consciousness. Having found this practice has changed my life. I've given myself the opportunity to live from a very honest place, and although it is a hard path, because we have to confront what's real and come out of your mental creations, I like it and I feel like I'm really living. So very often there's stuff, you know, most of the neurosis in our life seems to come about because there are certain things that we're not really willing to feel. Like, say like if somebody pays you a compliment and you're one of those people who immediately feels like an imposter, you know, like I can't, that can't really be true about me or um, you're jealous of someone and that's not allowed and then you'd go into some incredible like neurotic twist in order to pretend that you're not really jealous and all of those things. Um, what happens in this practice is that we just stop and open up and what's called letting go is often letting it be. It's easier to just let it happen and let it be there. 
And what can happen similarly to when I was accepting the luxury of this mansion is that you suddenly see, if you kind of open up to the difficult side of your life, that these problems, um, they don't necessarily only belong to me, that um, these are things that all human beings go through. And sometimes our mind makes more of a problem. Like once you're actually looking at it and living in it, you can examine it, uh, its nature in a different way than when you're turning away from it. And you can start to see that what goes through our mind not only um, doesn't have a self as an owner, but also arises and passes away just like everything else. And that's the kind of intuition that comes in after you do longer practice that um, you realize that the way it seems to you isn't all it's cracked up to be and that nothing can hold you for very long. And when this happens, you start to see like that the mind starts to naturally choose to be in the present when maybe you don't have to like what's going on. Like it's not saying that you're going to like love everything, like at least, but you can tolerate it and not turn away. And there's a kind of, oh, like a settling in, like when you're resisting something and, you know, you get into this kind of like cramp in yourself and you can just say like, okay, so I don't like this. I feel the resistance. And there's something that kind of settles in a way that is hard to describe unless you've felt it. I don't know, like maybe you know, like when you're in a traffic jam or something and you know you're not gonna make your appointment and you stop honking the horn and you just say like, all right, so I won't be on time. And there's a difference in that, like there's a relief in it. And it really makes a difference to us. And it can go to very kind of deep place. Do you guys need to leave or something? Anyway. Um, one of the, you, you may also, I won't take it as rude if um, anyone has to go before the end. Um, I had a friend in my meditation group who was dying with a lot of pain and a lot of confusion in her mind, like she couldn't remember anything because of the incredible amounts of chemo that she'd had. And it was really distressing to her because she was a super intelligent person. She was one of the first people that ever wrote about cross-cultural um, psychology. She went to Japan and lived there with her scholar husband for some period of time. And she was a therapist and she started just looking around and saying that um, the way that Japanese people suffer is constructed differently from the way that Western psychology thinks of people as suffering. And she completed this very respectable book about cross-cultural psychology just before she died. She'd written it all while she was there, starting as a young woman. But um, in any case, when her bones were all crumbling with cancer and her mind was all crumbling with chemo, she, what she would do is that she would just stop and be with herself um, for a period of time, like when she'd cross the room and she didn't know where she was going and she would get really confused, she would say she would just sit down and just be there for a while. And she said that by being there, something allowed in her to be okay with how it was. Like something would come right through just stopping an opening, which was what she learned from the meditation practice. So I advise anyone of you who's interested in that to try it. Um, when something is coming at you, to wait and feel and allow what's happening. Like um, I was talking about Michael J. Fox earlier and he said that 
what he deals with in his own Parkinson's. He wasn't able to hide it anymore when he started to get really shaky. And he said, it's no longer anything good or bad. It's just what is. And when you approach it that way, then it doesn't really create the same kind of problems um, it does when you think that it's something terrible and horrible that's happening to you. And that is actually something really meaningful. Like, there's nothing that can really take away the at this point. Like, human beings, we do our best to get rid of problems as best we can, you know. Um, we try to cure diseases, we take aspirins and all that stuff, but when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, there's some things that we haven't been able to get rid of. And this ability that we have to pause and open up and just be in life, is it has a kind of miraculous quality of healing for the mind. And this type of happiness is something really genuine that we can find. And there can be a gratitude for that that's based on something genuine because in a certain way, we know that we're standing in the truth of what we are, not in a fantasy. And I don't know why it matters, you know? Like, I guess we could have been, you could theoretically imagine a universe in which it wouldn't be significant that being in the moment in this way, like actually being with what is, would make a difference. But somehow in our universe and the way we're made as beings, it does. Walt Whitman says, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. And the ant, he calls it the pismire. The pismire is equally perfect, and a grain of sand, and the egg of the wren, and the tree toad is a masterpiece for the highest, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven. The narrowest hinge in my hand puts to scorn all machinery and the cow crunching with lowered head surpasses any statue, and a mouse is a miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. So this aspect of being present in the moment does something to, you know, we use our attention to be present and we actually pay attention to the features of what's here. So in mindfulness, you actually have to feel your breath and feel your steps and stuff. And, you can kind of turn your mindfulness in a gratitude or to gratitude or to awe, like um, to feel as you're walking, like grateful for having feet and that the boards of the floor are not rotten. You can incline the mind this way to start to harvest um, in your perception uh, what's good. And this is a different ski slope from the ski slope that all couples fight about. My husband and I have the, uh, were recommended by some of our friends to start watching Korean gangster movies at night and we get them on Netflix and there's some very good ones. Um, usually it's someone who, who's like got superpowers of fighting and they've been hurt and they go out and they like get all the bad guys and stuff like, you know, but they're really good, you know, and they save little kids and stuff. Um, and the one that I'm going to draw attention to now is called Cold Eyes. It's great. It has subtitles um, if you have Netflix. And it's this young woman who's trained as an observer, uh, like a sort of urban spy for the police force. And, you know, in her training, she has to notice, like, 
the newspaper that somebody's carrying and the old lady shopping basket and who looks at who in the subway car because she's tracking, she's trained to track criminals. And the coldness of her, it's about attention, of course, developing attention. And the coldness of her eye is that she's supposed to stay on the mission. So one time she ruins her mission by stopping someone from being murdered that she sees and um, she's not able to keep her eyes completely cold. But we can also have um, eyes that look for certain kinds of things that open the door to how amazing people are. Like if my husband didn't buy the butter, I can remember other amazing things about him and other things that he's done. And the fact that he's there and the fact that he puts up with me, which is really a big deal. <laughs> I could be awed by that ability. Um, so from sort of the point of view of our ego, our unsatisfied mind, what do we need to be happy? But from the point of view of this kind of more simple mindfulness imbued with gratitude, it's kind of easier to be happy with simple things. If we're trained to notice the breath, for example, in our meditation, it might seem like a very boring object, like it's just kind of the same and in and out and in and out, and quickly our mind wanders off and starts would almost rather remember an argument than pay attention to the breath. But imagine, like from your body's point of view, how important the breath is or not. Like if you didn't have one of your breaths, what would that be like? And also each breath is supported by the generosity of the entire world of plants, that the plants are reciprocally breathing out the things that we need to breathe in and vice versa. And back in childhood, my uh, parents had this encyclopedia where there was a thing saying that every breath contains molecules that were breathed by Leonardo da Vinci. And, you know, he lived to be 77 and he took so and so many breaths and there's so and so many molecules in each of his breaths and in our breaths. And the way the breezes work around the world, it's like it's been like that. And so, and if it was Leonardo da Vinci, then they also must be have been breathed by Pol Pot. I don't, I mean, it's really a crazy, awesome thing. <laughs> so we could practice occasionally going kind of in this direction rather than the habitual direction of our mind. It would be more of a fun kind of life. The practice of awe and gratitude and responsibility that mindfulness can give us some access to. So I'll close with um, a poem by W.S. Merwin, called Thanks. Listen, with the night falling, we're saying thank you. We're stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We're running out of the glass rooms with our mouth full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We're standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we're saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we're saying thank you. Over telephones, we're saying thank you, in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators. Remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we're saying thank you. In the banks, we're saying thank you, in the faces of the officials and the rich. And of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we're saying thank you. 
with the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we're saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we say thank you faster and faster. Nobody listening, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Thank you for your attention. And I will not take it as being um, rude if it, although I know it's the standard of the place to say to stay through the end. If anyone needs to go home now, I'm happy. And if we would like to stay and have a conversation for a little while, we can. And if you need to leave at any time during that, um, that's okay too. So I guess the floor is open now for anyone who'd like to say anything or ask anything or Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.